Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, reading from verse 12 through to 17. Revelation 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. No, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, and who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Shall we pray? Father, we just thank you again that we can gather around your word and we just ask that as we do this that you will just help us to focus on what is being said to us through this letter that John wrote. And our Father, we just pray that you will help us to understand it and also that you might just help us to see how it relates to us today in our day, in the days in which we live. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this passage in Revelation, you know, we've seen Ephesus, and Ephesus was known for his its commerce. We looked at Smyrna, and Smyrna was a place that was known for its beauty, while here in Pergamon, this is known as Asia's capital of culture. And it's about 113 miles away from Ephesus. If you look at the position of these churches, they are all fairly close together. Now, Pergamon was famous for its library. In the library, they had 200,000 parchment scrolls. This library was second only to the great library at Alexandria. And history tells us that parchment was invented here in Pergamon. And it was used as an alternative of papyrus. It was famous for its temple to Zeus. The majority of the people there worshipped the Greco-Roman god of medicine and of healing. Asclepius. And as in Smyrna, the Roman imperial cult that recognised the emperors as kings was very strongly adhered to in Pergamon. And like all seven churches, the Christians suffered under the hands of Titus Flavius Domitian, who demanded that he be worshipped as Lord and God. And people would have to announce that. They would have to pronounce that they saw him as being Lord and God. The believers who refused to acknowledge this would be excluded from 
the trade guilds, and that would mean that they would become virtually unemployable. And this would not only reduce them to poverty, it would also expose them to a greater persecution. Now, one of the two powers of authority that was given to Roman governors in these places, it was known as the Ius Gladii, the legal concept, and it was known as the right of the sword. This meant that this particular governor, this particular person would have the power to pronounce life or death. And this was a power that had been exercised here in Pergamon exercised against the believers. And we can see the relevance of this as we look at the opening words to the church at Pergamon. We read in Revelation uh, 2 verse 12, To the angel of the church Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You know, the sword that the people would have been familiar with was the the short double-edged sword that was carried by a Roman soldier. The sword that the believers feared was this illus gladii that could be used at any time by the Roman governor to deprive a person of their lives. These words of introduction are a reminder to the believer that there's one greater than any Roman governor or any other world governor. And that one is Jesus, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, the sword that could secure eternal life and also administer eternal death. John, in his gospel, records for us the words that Jesus said to Pilate. This was at the time of the crucifixion when uh, Jesus was being tried by Pilate. And in John 19, verse 10 and into verse 11, this is what Pilate said to Jesus. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You know, this reminds us of the encouraging words that we read in Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. The Roman Empire, at the time when this letter was written, held world domination. And these were the conditions that all the believers were subject to. But there's one who is greater than any earthly authority the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword, the sword that rules both heaven and earth. And these people needed to know that. It was very relevant to their lives in the days that they were living. It's also relevant to our lives today. So we continue in this passage with words of encouragement and approval. And in verse 13, we read this. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
yet you remained true to my name. And you didn't renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Let's just consider those words for a few moments. First of all, when Jesus said, I know where you live. You know, this is true. Jesus knows where they live. He knows the difficult circumstances that they were living in. Surely he will rescue them and punish those who are persecuting them. They've been suffering persecution. Jesus knows what happened to Antipas who was probably one of the church leaders, maybe the main church leader, and he had refused to compromise the gospel. And because of his faith in Jesus, he was martyred. You know, we're not told in the Bible, but history tells us that he was boiled alive in a bronze bowl. You know what this is? This is the the illus gladii, the right of the sword being exercised. You see, it's a figure of speech, the right of the sword. And what it means is that whoever gave the command for this to happen was using his human authority to put Antipas to death because of his faith. Jesus knows that although they are still being persecuted, he knows that they remain faithful to his name. They're still suffering and they are still faithful in the city that Jesus calls your city. Your city where Satan lives. Let's think about that. You see, Satan was at work in Pergamon as he was at work in the other seven churches that we're reading about. And also he is still at work today within the church. How is Satan at work? Well, the Bible tells us it can be when we know he is, he is the father of lies. We can read that in John 8 verse 44. But sometimes he can come as a roaring lion, as he did when he came against Antipas. We read about Satan as the roaring lion in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. He can also come as a masquerading angel of light. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14. And he's here in these churches that we're reading about. And he's here in the churches today. The father of lies. The roaring lion. And the masquerader of light. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that it's possible for Christians to live in a difficult place. And at times it's essential that there is a Christian witness in a difficult place. You know, this is why Jesus doesn't just come and take these people out. We see it today, don't we? We see Christians suffer through difficult times and people will ask, why does God let this happen? Well, this happens because of sin, because of the sinful world that we live in and because it is necessary that the gospel be there in that difficult place and you know the bible tells us that there is a way for a christian to live as a christian in a different place listen to what paul says in 2 corinthians it's 2 corinthians 6 verse 14 to 18 
Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Notice here the rhetorical question. We already know the answers to these things. You know, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Then he goes on, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Now, Belial, this word means the devil or one who is friends with the devil. So we read on, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know, these are the words of Paul as he speaks to believers. Many believers who are in difficult situations. And we've got to realize this is not about being a hermit. It's not about removing yourself from society. It's not about continuing uh, cutting off people and not, not mixing with them. This is about avoiding a compromise with things that are within society. Things that are contrary to the gospel. Let's continue in this passage as we come to verse 12 and verse 13. You see, the Lord has been speaking to the faithful, but not all in the church at Pergamum are remaining true to his name. So he's spoken to these faithful people in verse 12 and 13. And after Jesus has commended and encouraged those who are faithful, he will now bring a warning to those who are compromising the gospel. So we have words of admonition, firm warning and reprimand. So verse 14 of Revelation 2. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Balaam. You know, the believers would have known what Jesus meant when he told John to mention Balaam and Balak. And we can learn all about them by reading Numbers chapters 22 through to 24. What we need to know in, in the context of what's being said to the believers here in Pergamon is this. Firstly, Balaam was a prophet of God. That's a reality. That is a truth. Balaam was a prophet of God. Secondly, Balaam was offered a bribe from King Balak of Moab to put a curse on Israel. So thirdly, what we see from these two things is the letter of revelation is for God's people. And fourthly, the lifestyle of a believer, get this, the lifestyle of a believer 
can lead other believers away from the Lord. And it can lead that believer away from the Lord. And we have the result of Balaam's act of compromise because that's what it was. This was a a, a prophet of God compromising his position. Listen to what we read in Numbers 25. This is a chapter that follows on from the two chapters I've just mentioned in Numbers. And the start of 25, verse 1 and 3. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Balaam, uh, to Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. You see how, you know, little steps develop into bigger steps. They began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, and it goes on, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. And then it goes on, the people ate the sacrificial meal, bowed down before these gods. See how it progresses. Compromise. So we're back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 15, and this is what we read. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let's just stop a moment. Nicolaitans, you will come across that word uh, again. We've already come across it to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 verse 6. The Nicolaitans, they were those who had worked out ways for believers to integrate with society by accepting and taking part in certain aspects of social and religious activities. Things that would make life easier for them. The problem was that they were things that were contrary to the gospel. Now, the New Testament writers warned the churches that this sort of thing would happen, and it was happening in the early church. It would also progress, but these were early stages of this type of teaching. Here's just a few references for us this evening from um, the New Testament writers. 2 Peter, verse 15. This is what Peter said when he spoke about these people. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beziah, who loved the wages of wickedness. And then Jude 1. Uh, well, there's only one in Jude, one chapter, but it's verse 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. What is this about? Well, to put it simply, that this is about tailoring the gospel so that it will fit in with the rules of the society so that we can gain acceptance from those who, in truth, have no desire to hear the truth of the gospel. This is what compromise is. And we come to Revelation 
verse uh, 16 of chapter 2. And we come to hear the words from the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. See, we have the reference here to the sword. But this is the sword of God. Then we come in verse 17 to the call for all to listen and to respond to what they hear. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You know, <clears throat> we're, we're looking here at, at symbols. And we have the reference to the hidden manna. Those who conquer by exercising repentance would be sustained by God. Just as he had provided his people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. He would then sustain, or he will now sustain, the believers who turn away from these paths that they've been going down and come back to the living God. They come in repentance. They come in the name of the one who is the bread of heaven, Jesus. So this is, it, it, it's, it's a referral back to the days of the the. The Old Testament, these people would have been familiar with that, that God's people were not perfect. They often sinned, but they were brought back to God by God. But all through that, he sustained them with the manna from heaven. And we read about this when Jesus feeds the, 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 the 5,000. And when he reveals that he is the bread of life now, this is the, the hidden manna from heaven. He is the hidden manna from heaven that is there to sustain his people, you and I. And these people who are in this church of Pergamon. What about the white stone? Well, again, you've got to look at the meaning behind this. You see, a white stone, I understand, was put into a vessel by a judge as a vote of acquittal. That's the first thing. Another thing is that a white stone was sometimes used as a ticket to gain admission to a very high-level feast. The white stone was seen as being a thing of great value. So white stones were highly prized in the days of the early church. So the white stone is a symbol of the faithful believer, or a symbol to the faithful believer of something that is greatly valued. What could be more valuable than being one who is in the name of Jesus and by the name of Jesus has been acquitted? In other words, forgiven and free from the penalty of sin. 
What can be more valuable than being one who has been invited to a feast that will be held in God's kingdom? What can be more valuable than one who carries a new status with a new name? A name that is personal to them and a name that is known by God. <coughs> Excuse me. As we draw towards a close this evening, you know, this letter was sent to seven churches in Asia. It was sent to real churches, to real people, people living under the rule of a world power that was opposed to the gospel. The complete letter was to be read by them, not just this first bit, not just where they were mentioned. It was all for them. The complete letter is to be read by every believer, everyone who has ears. Why? So that they can know what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. What churches? These seven churches? Yes. But also every other church that has ever been and ever will be up until the time when the Lord returns. You know, I want us just to think about these things. And as we look together at what's being said to these individual churches, this section, uh, Revelations chapter 2, verse 1 through to chapter 3, verse 22, I want you to have a look at that and see what relevance you think this has on the universal church, the church in our generation, the church throughout. The world. You know, we sang a hymn, didn't we, on Sunday? And I want to just remind us of the words of that hymn as we do draw to a close uh, this evening. It's a hymn by Samuel John Stone. I think he died in 1900. Um, but listen to these words, just consider them as I read them to you. And it starts off The church is one foundation. This is the church, the one foundation of the church is Jesus. That's what it's saying. So in the words of the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. A charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses, with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation, and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till, with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth has union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones, one holy Lord, give us grace that we like them, the meek, the lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. And we just ask that this evening you will have opened our hearts to that which you would have us know, which you would have us understand, that we might take to heart. This letter is written to your people. 
and as your people, we pray that we might listen to what you have to say. And we do this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.